Where do I begin? Good morning, first. Good to see you all. Yeah. Our, our, our readings today talk about blessings and curses. Uh, Jeremiah, the, the first reading says, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from God. And then Jeremiah says, they're like a, a, a shrub in the desert. Can a shrub in the desert really grow tall and bear fruit? Can, can, that, can that happen? Probably not. Why? Because there's no, no water. But then he says, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water. So when a tree is planted by water, all the water soaks into the ground. And that tree always has water so it can grow and grow. So when we trust in the Lord, we're like that tree. All of our strength, all of our sustenance, everything comes from God. But when we're not connected to God, we're like that bush in the desert that can't grow, that is just going to die because we're not connected to God, because we're not connecting ourselves to God. He's already connected himself to us, but we have to reciprocate. We have to connect to God as well. And so, and, and then Luke does the same thing in his gospel. All these, all these uh, blessings, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who weep. And then he says, but woe to those who are rich now. Woe, woe to those who laugh. And he's telling us the same thing that Jeremiah is telling us. That if we're not connected to the Lord, if we don't trust in the Lord, if we begin to depend on, our, on, on what's in this world, like our laughter and our riches and the things that, that make us who we are, um, the things that satisfy us in this world, all those things that we hang on to. But if we're not paying attention to God, then watch out. But if we are connected to God, what a blessing that will be. We might not have all the riches in the world. That's not what God is here for. God is here to give us himself. And he wants us to give ourselves to him. That's who God is. That's why God came. And I'm going to talk about that in the sermon here in a minute. But connect yourselves to God through prayer, through reading the Bible, through coming to church, through singing, through even at school and at home. Connect yourselves to God. He wants to stay connected with you. And, and your life will be blessed not in the way the world sees blessings, but in the way God sees blessings. Because we only become rich when we are connected to God. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about rich in love in our hearts for God and not for this world. So it takes a, it takes a lifetime to try to get there. But it's a day-by-day -day thing. And it begins even at our young, our young ages. Okay, think about these things. Very difficult lesson today, but think about it and see what it means. Let your heart think about it, meditate on it. Okay, thank you for coming up. Hey, Sophie, come here.
Well, well, thank you. <laughs> there was a husband and a wife from North Carolina who decided to go to Florida one long weekend to thaw out during one particularly icy winter. And because both of them had jobs, they had difficulty coordinating their schedules. And it was finally decided that the husband would fly to Florida on a Thursday, and his wife would come the day after uh, following him. Well, upon arriving as planned, the husband checks into the hotel. And there he decides to open his laptop to send his wife an email back in North Carolina. However, when he sent the email, he didn't realize that he accidentally left one letter out of her email address. He didn't realize it, and he sent it. Well, back here in Houston, there was a widow who had just returned from her husband's funeral. He had been a minister for many years, now gone home to glory after uh, a heart attack. The widow checked her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends supporting her in her grief. And upon reading the first message, she fainted and fell to the floor. That's not even fun. Well, why are you laughing at that? Do, well, I hope I don't faint up here. Y'all going to laugh at me if I faint up here? She fainted and fell to the floor. And the widow's son rushed into the room found his mother on the floor and saw the computer screen, which read, to my loving wife, I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. It's really hot down here. <laughs> In case you haven't already noticed within the gospel readings these past several weeks during this epiphany season, this is an action-packed season of the church year. On that first day of epiphany, the day of epiphany, there were these mysterious magi, these wise men who followed a star to Bethlehem to worship Jesus as their savior too. On the first Sunday after the Epiphany, the heavens opened and God spoke and the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. On the second Sunday, Jesus miraculously saved a wedding in Cana of Galilee by turning water into wine. On the third and fourth Sundays, we read that Jesus escaped murder from his friends and neighbors in Nazareth. And then last Sunday, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, Jesus miraculously filled Peter's nets with fish. With all of this Epiphany emphasis on Jesus' power to perform miracles, to satisfy needs, to heal, to provide, to fix, to solve, 
we might get the wrong impression that if you follow Jesus, all the problems in your life will suddenly disappear, that every problem will be solved and every need satisfied, that your life as a disciple will be one of unbroken happiness and joy. Or even worse, you might conclude that if those things aren't true for you, then either your faith isn't strong enough or Jesus isn't really God and doesn't really love you. And so today in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus reveals to us the stark truth about this life, about true life. And it's not what most people think. Jesus says that in this life it's better to have poverty than wealth. It's better to have hunger than satisfaction. It's better to have weeping than laughter. It's better to have persecution than popularity. And let's be honest, what he said on that day sounds like absolute nonsense, at least according to the world standards. It's like Jesus is describing some sort of alternate universe. We stand before living newborn babies. This alternate universe, by the way, is kind of what we proclaim here in church every Sunday, right? And the world would consider much of what we say is nonsense. I mean, we have to realize that if we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about. So we stand before living newborn babies and declare that they are dead in sin. The world doesn't believe that. We stand before caskets and urns of dead people and declare that they're only sleeping. We pour regular water into a bowl and we call it the fountain of life. We eat and drink bread and wine and confess it to be the very body and blood of Christ. We believe that our sins are forgiven before God in heaven when a priest grants absolution here on earth. The point is that it's not really about what you or I or anyone else says or thinks. It's about what God says. God says that newborn babies are dead and that dead believers are alive. God says that water and word give life and bread and wine forgive sins. God says that confessed sinners are justified and righteous, self-righteous hypocrites are damned. What God says, that's reality. It's not what you or I feel or think. And who are we to argue? When God said, let there be, the universe and everything in it came into being. When God sent his son to earth to make the lame walk, to make the dead come alive, to free those possessed by demons, that's what happened. When God through his servant says that you are forgiven, justified, and saved right here, right now, then that's what you are, justified, forgiven, and saved. Now you might wonder, what does this have to do with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain? That's what it's called in Luke's Gospel. He's talking about things that really hit close to home, we say. He's talking about our wealth. He's talking about our health, our happiness, our social status. These things are important to us, we say. 
every minute, every day. So what is Jesus trying to say? People from all, let's, let's consider the context. People from all over Israel had flocked to see Jesus, to listen to him, to be healed from their diseases. But Luke makes it clear that not all of these people that came to him were believers. They were not all Israelites. They came from Tyre and Sidon and all over Israel. At least some were coming simply to benefit from Jesus' divine power, to have their temporary needs satisfied, to be sent on their happy way, healed. And Jesus knew that his disciples might get the wrong idea about being a Christ follower from all of these miracles that have been taking place. And so he presses pause on the healing and he explains how the blessings of this life relate to true life. Folks, the Bible is painfully clear that Jesus didn't send his only son into the world to make you or me or anyone else rich, well-fed, happy, or popular. He didn't come to establish a paradise on earth. Now that will come later but not then. And make no mistake about it, it's not that he couldn't have, because he could have. It's not that he tried and failed. The one who created everything with just his word, who cast out demons and healed the sick and raised the dead, certainly could have spoken, and this earth would have become an instant paradise once again. Jesus could have established another Eden, planted a tree of life in it, placed you in it. And it wouldn't have required him to die on the cross. You could have lived free of disease and crime and poverty and hunger and sadness and eaten from that tree of life and lived forever. Then why didn't God do that? Well, for the very reason that God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in the first place. The only way to really understand life right now is to remember what happened in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. God gave Adam one simple command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam ate, and the death he earned by his disobedience wasn't just the separation of his body and soul, it was a separation from God. From the moment Adam sank his teeth into that forbidden fruit, he forfeited perfection. He lost his perfect relationship with God, and his sin had consequences. God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. God drove Adam and Eve out of the perfect bliss of Eden so that they wouldn't have to endure the curse of sin of separation from God forever. Folks, let me reemphasize this. 
God had Adam and Eve removed from the garden because he loved them and didn't want them to eat from the tree of life and live under the curse of sin forever. In other words, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, God come down from heaven thousands of years later from the Garden of Eden was already in the mind of God. God already had a plan to save humanity from the consequences of of disobedience, from the curse of sin. The thorns and the thistles and the pain in childbirth, enmity between believers and non-believers would remind them that the world wasn't the problem, they were the problem. In other words, God drove them out of paradise to lead them to repentance, and he did it out of love. Okay, so why doesn't Jesus give us everything we think we might want for happiness in our life? Why doesn't he just, you know, snap his fingers and turn this world into paradise once again? Well, because even if Jesus did recreate paradise on earth, we would still be under God's curse because we have not continued to do everything written in the law. This is a direct quote from St. Paul to the Galatians in chapters 5, verse 10, which in turn is a direct quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy 27, 26, and is also found in Jeremiah 11, 3, and Ezekiel 18, 4. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the Lord by doing them. If you don't do the works of the Lord, you're cursed. God could have caused us to live forever, but it would be an awful existence because we wouldn't be forgiven, we wouldn't be justified, we wouldn't be saved. Worse than the living dead, we would be the living damned. It would be hell on earth. It would be the very life God wanted to spare us by driving Adam and Eve out of the garden. And that is why Jesus says on the Sermon on the Plain that in this life, poverty is better than wealth, hunger is better than satisfaction, weeping is better than laughter, persecution is better than popularity because that's the reality of our standing with God without Jesus. The broken world around us, the consequences of our sin that touch our lives are vivid reminders that the world is not the problem. We are the problem. Weeping and begging and hunger for God's grace and mercy are the only proper response because only then will we appreciate the real reason that God came to earth. Jesus didn't come to get rid of poverty and hunger and sadness. Jesus came to get rid of sin and death and the curse of God. Jesus came to gather up the pieces of the commandments we have broken, put together a perfect life of obedience, Jesus did. Jesus came to take our sin, our rebellion upon himself to the extent that when God looked on earth on that Good Friday, the only sinner God saw was Jesus. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and God unleashed on Jesus, All of his wrath over sin, all of his curses meant for sinners, 
then and only then was God's justice satisfied and his curse removed. By his perfect life, by his hellish death, Jesus won true life for you and for me. Life in an eternal kingdom filled with riches beyond imagination and endless feast hosted by Jesus himself. A place of unbroken joy where God himself calls us his beloved children. And when the Holy Spirit works on your heart, my heart, to understand and believe that this is true life, then you will see the reality of this life. Because the devil, he either wants to fill us so full of wealth and food and happiness and popularity that we don't see or feel the real misery of our sin. Or he wants us to see Jesus as nothing more than a cosmic genie who came to give us all those things. The devil wants us to believe that we are rich in good works, not to confess our spiritual poverty, to be satisfied in our own goodness, not to hunger for God's righteousness, to laugh at our sin, not to weep over it, to value what other people say about us more than what God says about us. But the awful reality is that if we believe that because we are rich, and well-fed and happy and popular, that everything is all right between us and God, then the devil has won and we are lost. Most importantly, and this is Jesus' main point here, most importantly, our circumstances in life right now are not an accurate measure of our standing with God. Only the cross is. That's what the cross is all about. We deserve to hang on that cross because we are all poor, miserable sinners. But Jesus hung there in our place. That's the truth that the devil doesn't want us to see or to confess. And that's why Jesus preaches this shocking sermon and wakes us up to the truth and turns the world upside down for us. He lets us in on the secret that what made Eden paradise was not the climate, was not the food, not the happiness or the fact that men and women got along. What made Eden paradise was the fact that Adam and Eve were perfect and had a perfect relationship with God. That is what Jesus came to restore. And he has indeed restored it. He kept all of the commandments for you and he gives you the credit. He suffered the death that our sins deserved and our record is wiped clean. In Christ, when God looks at you, he is as pleased with you as he was when he first created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This place where sin and death and the devil stalk us and hurt us, kills us, kills our loved ones, this is not true life. True life is with God and he gives us signs of true life even in this world of death. He gave us new life in the life-giving water of baptism. 
He restores our lives day after day with his forgiveness. He gives us the body and blood of his son, which preserves us to life everlasting. And so today, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus reveals the stark truth about true life. And again, it's not what most people think. It is so much better. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.